Hi, this is R.A. Salvatore, and you're listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... Well, one of the cool things I was able to do was a friend of mine, Jeff McIntosh, had died of brain cancer six months before I was working on the book. And a bunch of us got together, it was friends of his who worked in the you know, video game and tabletop industries. And so we're going to just slip Jeff's name into a bunch of different oh, stuff. that's great. So if you see in the movie, there's a bit at the end where Darth Vader comes onto the, the scene, he's slaughtering people. And there's this guy who's got the, the plans, and he runs and he stuffs them through a door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a guy who grabs him and takes him on to Princess Leia, right? The guy that grabs him and takes him on to Princess Leia, his name is Tashma Jeffkin. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Anthony Cars. Welcome to another episode of The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, uh, everywhere that you might want to be at The GBB Podcast. I am your host, Jamie Green. You can find me at The Roarbots. And joining me this week is Anthony Cars. You can find me at uh, Sunstreaker84 on, you know, all places you get your media socially. Welcome back. Hey, how you doing? I'm I'm good. It's been a while since you've been been around these parts, so welcome back. You said welcome back. I'm looking behind me. I'm like, who? Who are we talking to? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's great to have you. So you, um, just a quick heads up. You weren't actually in this interview. No, no. I I read the book. I was excited, and then uh, you know, I, I I flipped to page twenty two instead of uh, thirty four, and ended up <laughs> you know down some oubliette that I couldn't uh, get out of. Those are the best endings, aren't they? They are. They are. You, you see the spike descending ever closer. <laughs> so for those of you who might be confused, we are this week talking a little bit about Choose Your Own Adventure. <laughs> yeah, Choose Your Own Adventure is trademarked, and I guess it's Choose Co. now. Oh, is it really? Yes. I think they've, you know, when they started republishing the originals, the white-covered originals from the 80s, um, they started, the guy, Ari Montgomery, started a new company and called it Choose Co. Okay, okay. Yeah. But everything else that is a quote-unquote choose-your-own-adventure type book can't actually use that language. Right. Um, so they have to do something else. That's why we ended up with like Pick a Path and um, Endless Journeys and... and. Um, um, I was going to try a, a line of you know a line called "Select Your Own Excitement," um, but then <laughs> oh, that sounds like something totally different. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's like no, no, sorry, that's you're you're coming to my book, and you're you're going to be very disappointed. I can get. <laughs> I think there's a there's probably I, I would say an untapped market, but maybe that's just my ignorance showing for adult themed choose your own adventure books. Maybe they already exist. I don't know. I think Untapped Market is actually the first title. <laughs> so this week we're talking to Matt Forbeck. And the reason we're talking Pick a Path, Choose Your Own Adventure, Create Your Own Excitement is because he has four new books out 
that are the Dungeons and Dragons Endless Quest books. Now, this was a series that was around back in the 80s when the Choose Your Own Adventure machine was going strong. And they have not been around. I mean, there have been Choose Your Own Adventure type books since then. But they've like they've they've been few and far between. Like I know there were some Star Wars ones and there are some like kids ones that are based on random cartoons, but they seem to have dropped off in popularity precipitously. Yeah, I think that uh, they needed to hit peak nostalgia before they uh, made a comeback. It's like yeah. now now that our kids are at that prime reading age, it's like, you know what I loved? I loved, <laughs> you know, being at the top floor of the library next to a choose your own adventure carousel just picking books off of it all afternoon and looking out at the water and reading books. I'm like, I want that for my kid. Where can I find that? Now, did you ever um, introduce your kids to these books? Uh, No, my son went right from um, uh, Rick Riordan uh, to Mm -hmm. Shakespeare. Overachiever, I see. Uh, literally, like I came home one day and he had the uh, the tome of you know all of Shakespeare's plays in hand. He's like, mm-hmm. "Dad, can I read this?" I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> why not?" I guess. <laughs> and uh, yeah, my my daughter, um, you know, I hand her something with uh, with elves and dragons on the cover, and she's like, "Get out of here with that garbage." <laughs> now, my son, um, I. A few years ago, I still have all of my Choose Your Adventure books from when I was a kid. And I've every time we go to like a used bookstore, I'll pick up ones that I don't have. So I've got a ton of them at this point. Nice. And a couple of years ago, I sat down with him. I introduced the whole concept to him and he loved it. Like he immediately glommed right onto it. And he's still to this day, I mean, he's seven now. Um, so he's like prime Choose Your Own Adventure t- like age. Oh, think. totally. And he'll still come up because I have them all in my office because they have them all together. And he'll come up and he'll just put, pick books off the shelf and just sit there reading. Uh, and I, I watch him and he does exactly what I did when I was a kid. When you die, you go back and then you like you like or you flip ahead to see if there's a V end on that page and you don't choose that. that you keep your finger on the page. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you give yourself an easy out so you can back up and and. and Make the other choice. <laughs> oh, I totally. Uh, I'm flipping. Back. Oh, look, there's the ending. I don't. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Although there was one. Uh, what was it? It was a Marvel series where uh, Wolverine was the protagonist, and I remember like I, I was sadistic with that one. It was like I like if I got a good ending, I was like, no, 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 no. It's Wolverine. He's got to be in like. He, I need him to suffer. Yeah, so I, I would go and like find all the bloodiest, worst possible uh, endings for him. Wow, I never, I don't have any Marvel Choose Your Own Adventure books. I wish I could find them. I can't even remember what they were called. I just remember there was one scene where it was like an adamantium uh, saw blade was coming towards his skull. Yeah, I've got some Indiana Jones ones, which are pretty cool. And you, you're a Transformers guy. Did you know that there are Transformers ones? I did not know that. Yeah, I've got about five or six of them. Oh wow, you've been holding out, Jamie. I have. They're they're pretty good. Now I am not as big a Transformers nut as you are, so I don't know a lot of the characters. You know, I don't know who these robots are, but it's still they're still fun. They're still fun stories. Mega dude and Optimus something or other. Uh, anyway, Endless Quest was a series. Did you read those when you were a kid? I did not. No, No, I I missed those. 
Yeah, I also miss those. I have a whole ton of them now, and they're fun, but I was much more of a traditional choose your own adventure and the time machine books, the time machine spit the spin-offs, which were actually choose your own adventures. I adored the time machine ones. Yeah, those are good. Those are really yeah. good. Yeah, but the new ones, uh, so the first four that Matt Forbeck has done, they each focus on one of like the standard character types from Dungeons and Dragons. So there's fighter, cleric, wizard, rogue. And so those are the first four. And they're a lot of fun. And what's interesting is that they're really um, heavily illustrated. Yeah. Right? Like, and, and what he, we talk about this in the interview, but what's interesting is that there was almost, I think they had a little bit done, like original art done, but almost all of that art was just picked up from the vast Dungeons and Dragons library that exists. I love it. So yeah, like whatever he wrote, there was this library of art that they could just go looking through and find something that fit that scene. Very cool. I mean, it's not like, God, yeah, D&D has a, yeah. a treasure trove of, uh, of line art. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Was it just me or, or did you want to smack the fighter on like every page? <laughs> now, I mean, let's be fair. Choose your own adventure characters are never the brightest bulbs in the box. I mean, they are us, right? And we like it throw you into a dungeon as a fighter and how well are you going to do? Yeah, but, you know, I, I really feel like this fighter, like, intelligence was his dump stat. I mean, there was <laughs> nothing going on there. <laughs> um, which is interesting, because some books, and I, I feel like not all of the Endless Quest ones, the originals, were like this. But I think that there was a spin-off series of them that were. They were much more of the game book, where you kept track of stats, and you had to, like write down things that happened to you and it would affect your decisions later in the game. Yeah. I, I wrote about them last year. Yeah. So these new ones though, are more just straight up. If you choose a go to page five, if you choose B go to page seven kind of thing, which are fun. I love them. So they're, they're targeting our kids. Like they're targeting the younger readers who are just getting into this whole thing and aren't quite ready to like, actually like keep notes while they read to like, you know, beef up their character. Uh, but this is the beginning. He's got a few more coming out next year, I believe. Mm -hmm. And hopefully this is hopefully they sell well. And this is a good um, a good start for more choose your own adventure type books, because I love them. And if, if you print a choose your own adventure type book, I'll buy it. Definitely. Definitely. Well, yeah. And it's choose your own adventure in D&D. So, yeah, it's uh, you know, two great, you know, endless addictions that are going to you know, they get them hooked all at once. That's right. That's right. Uh, so anyway, we're, we're going to go right into our conversation here with Matt. He uh, he has written a lot more than just these four choose your, uh, uh, endless quest books. He has written for Star Wars. He's written for Halo. He's written a lot of uh, for a lot of different IPs. He's written his own original books. He is pretty active on Twitter, so go check him out if you're not familiar with him. If you are a fan of this type of writing, definitely do check him out. He's got a lot of great books out there. I do highly recommend it. Um, and once again, I thank you guys for coming back week after week, subscribing, listening, following, recommending, whatever you're doing to support the show. I really do appreciate it. We are next week coming up on episode 200 wow i can you believe it i can't i can't i mean 200 episodes was when, we, when i first started this was sort of like yeah this will be fun for a couple months 
Um, and here I am almost four years later, 200 plus episodes in, but 200 numbered episodes. And um, it's kind of insane. So come back next week. Definitely. We've got a special guest to celebrate 200. And uh, I am Jamie Green. Thank you so much for coming back. I'm Anthony Cars. And uh, here's our interview with Matt Forbeck. Take care. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. It's awesome to have you here after uh, a little bit of rescheduling. Glad we could finally make it work. Well, thanks for having me on, Jamie. I appreciate it. Um, so we're going to primarily, I guess, here start off talking about the newest books that you have, which is a series of four, um, I guess you could call them Choose Your Own Adventures, but they're the en- set in the Endless Quest series from Dungeons & Dragons. Um, and I guess the obvious, obvious question here is, were you a Choose Your Own Adventure reader when you were younger? I was a big Choose Your Own Adventure reader. Now, we can't call these Choose Your Own no. Adventure books because that's a trademark <laughs> right. by somebody else, right? Um, so I usually call them pick-a-path books or something like that. But uh, I read the I read the, a whole bunch of the original Choose Your Own Adventure books. I read some fighting fantasy books, uh, Lone Wolf stuff, and also some of the original quest, original Endless Quest books, too, that TSR published back in the day. And they published a couple different series. There was the Endless Quest, and then there was the... I think it was called Super Endless Quest that actually had game mechanics in it, right? Yeah. Um, but one thing about the Endless Quest books is they're very much like the Choose Your Own Adventure books in that they're just, you know, turn to this page if you make this decision. You don't have to roll dice or keep track of hit points or anything like that, which makes them really good for younger readers. They're trying to aim this series at, uh, they say, 8 to 12-year-olds on the back, although I tend to think it'd be 10 and up. Yeah. But, you know, if you got a precocious 8-year-old, let them go for it. Well, I will tell you, I have a 7-year-old son who's obsessed with Choose Your Own Adventure pick a path, whatever. I still have all of mine from when I was a kid. And uh, I, I kind of collect them now. Like I, when we go to used bookstores, like that's the first thing I'll look for. And I just keep adding to my collection. So I've got two or three big bookshelves now just to choose your own adventure, the various series. And he loves them. Uh, oh, and and he gra- he's he stole these books from me. You're the new ones. He stole them from me, and he fell asleep last night reading them. So, uh, <laughs> and he's seven, and so it worked for him. I will say that. That's a great image. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, you you mentioned a few of the different series in that you were a reader, though. Did you have a go to series like one that was your favorite? God, um, not really. I mean, I read everything. I was I was such a voracious reader as a kid. I would read anything you put in front of me. Right. Yeah. Um, Definitely the Choose Your Own Adventure books were the ones that were my, my first and favorites. And then and by the time the Endless Quest stuff came along, I was more into college. So it was uh, uh, less my thing at that point. I was more into more advanced reading. But I still dove into them occasionally just for fun. Yeah. Um, but the Choose Your Own Adventure stuff came out when I was a kid originally. And I, I really did dig getting into all that. Yeah. And some of the, the game books, the funny fantasy stuff too, again, because they came out when I was a little bit older and I was more into doing uh, more sophisticated storytelling in games than, than you might get out of a Choose Your Own Adventure book. Right. Right. I remember the the ones that I always loved going back to were the Time Machine books. Did you ever read oh, those? That's great. Yeah. <laughs> they were this they were the Choose Your Own Adventure. They were like a spin-off of those, but they were all set in real history and they they had fewer choices to make and it was it was a lot more text. Um, yep. but I just loved I loved that you were set in this one it was like one was about dinosaurs or one was about World War II, but you could like jump around in time. And it was kind of like uh, Carmen Sandiego, but with a game book. And it was, it was just <laughs> awesome. So I love those. Exactly. It's all good fun. Right? <laughs> um, so which, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but these are the first, um, I, and you've written for games before, but these are the first yeah. game books you've written, correct? Yeah. Well, I mean, 
if you want to think about game books as far as like fiction, interactive fiction, then yes. Okay. Although I mean, I've written a lot of Dungeons and Dragons books and a lot of other books for other games over yeah. the years. Those are mostly source books for uh, tabletop role playing games, right? Right. And I've written plenty of other uh, 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 video game stuff as well. Like for instance, I wrote a good chunk of the Harvey Birdman Attorney at Law game which are based upon the Phoenix Wright game. So in that sense, they're visual novels. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is kind of a choose-your-own-adventure thing where you pick a path and there's not a whole lot of stats. It's mostly dialogue and choices that way. So um, it was something I was familiar with doing. I hadn't even done um, uh, interactive toy design where I'd done flow charting out different ways that electronic toys would work with kids too. So um, a lot of this was was fairly familiar to me, obviously as a fan as well. Yeah. How did... I mean, how did these four, this series of four, how did it come about? Like, how did you get attached to them? Uh, well, I wrote a book last year called Dungeonology for the guys over at, uh, it's called Studio Press, which is a division of King's Road Publishing, which is a division of Bonnier Publishing, which is... Uh, gotta love publishing. <laughs> over. Yeah, so it's just, everybody's got an imprint and an imprint and an imprint. But uh, it's also teamed up with, they do a co-publishing deal with Candlewick over here in the U.S., which is a fairly um, well-known children's publisher. Um, and they had the license to do two things. They had a license for the ology books, which were, if you've ever seen Dragonology and mm-hmm. Spyology and Egyptology and blah, 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 all the way through. There's been a dozen of these best-selling books that have like lots of fold-outs and pop-ups and uh, texturized uh, gems and, and uh, skins and things like that inside the books. And they also licensed Dungeons & Dragons. So they said, we need somebody who can do both a kid's pop-up book and do Dungeons & Dragons. And there aren't too many people that cross over very well for that. So they contacted me to write the Dungeonology book. And that apparently did well for them. I also wrote a little bit of text for their uh, Dungeons & Dragons coloring book they came out with last year, which is funny because it's like I just wrote the back cover text yeah. and said, I'm like, <laughs> you not know, I, I had you know, but all to do with that. It, nothing, nothing much at all. But, um, but uh, when they, uh, after they were done with the Dungeonology thing, they went back to Wizards of the Coast and said, what else can we do with you guys that fits with our audience? And somebody came up with, let's go back and do Endless Quest again. So uh, when they did that, they said, well, Matt did a good job with Dungeonology. Let's see if he's interested in doing Endless Quest. And, of course, when they contacted me, I said, yes, 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 I'd be happy to do this. <laughs> um, and then it was just a matter of, you know, negotiate the deal and figure out the characters and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. So did, far, I'm pretty damn thrilled with it. Did you go back to the original Endless Quest series at all? I looked at them. I didn't go back and reread them. I mean, a lot of the stuff... For one thing, the original Endless Quest stuff, um, it, it's not really what we were going for with this. This is a fully illustrated 128-page uh, set of books. And so it's a little bit different in tone and um, and aims than the original set were, right? So I didn't go back and reread them again, even though I went and uh, did a little bit of research on them. And I do remember having played with them when I was younger as well. Um but, you know, part of that is you want to make these your own. And also we updated them so that they fit modern-day Dungeons & Dragons stuff. I actually got a book and a half into this series before we realized that we wanted to connect them to modern Dungeons & Dragons adventures. Hmm. And I had to scrap about half a book and yeah. throw it away. The first book I had written, fortunately, uh, was a nice... I could I could uh, segue it right over to the... to uh, um, Where was it? I think it was Waterdeep. Hmm. Uh, so that one worked out pretty well. The second one I had to cannibalize for parts, right? So, <laughs> Um, but, you know, we ended up, you know, choosing four of the uh, fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons adventure books that they've done over the last few years and then setting the books in those adventures, right? Taking out little sections of those and saying, okay, we're going to take this bit here, blow it up and make a story about that one piece yeah. and have some fun with the characters in that. 
So I wanted to ask about that because I think some people who don't play Dungeons and Dragons might be put off by those labels when they see them on the book. And they think they're like, oh, I've already got to be immersed in this world. I have to know the characters. I have to know the, the, like, the settings. I didn't. I am not a D&D player, but, and I didn't find that to be the case at all. Right. I mean, like you said, this is targeted to younger readers who might not be players anyway. So I'm sure you had that in mind. But how did you approach the stories knowing that they were going to be tied to this franchise with such a long history, but still make them accessible to people who might not play. Well, you know, it's uh, if you go back to Stan Lee and Marvel comics, for instance, Stan would always say every comic book is somebody's first comic book. Yeah. Right? So you always have to introduce everybody. You have to get them in the different tropes. Fortunately, nowadays, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons has permeated society to such a degree that if I say this is an elf or a dwarf, I don't have to explain to you what an elf or a dwarf is. Right. People automatically get it, right? There's been enough of that stuff uh, going back to Tolkien, obviously, and his reinvention of such, all these different fantasy creatures. Um, so I didn't worry too much about that. I did try to keep it so that, uh, you know, you don't hear the dice rattling in the background, mm -hmm. as they say. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, because there are no mechanics in these books, that's kind of easy, right? Also, I've written a number of Dungeons & Dragons books before that's just as pure fiction. I've written a number of uh, the game books, you know, the, the source books for the different games and rule books. But I also wrote a trilogy of novels for Eberron, which is one of their settings. And I wrote it. Uh, I created their Knights of the Silver Dragon series, which was their first uh, chapter book series that they did back about 2004. I created that and wrote three books in that series as well. So I'm, I'm fairly familiar with, you know, what the readers are expecting and what they're going to need out of this. Uh, the interesting thing is if you look at some of the Amazon reviews, it hasn't been that problem at all. It's been um, it's been adult players coming to these expecting them to be Dungeons and Dragons. A lot, a lot deeper. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And they're like, well, this is dumb. It's not, what I, you know, it's not for a 40-year-old. Like, no, it's not meant for a 40-year-old. It's okay. Everything doesn't have to be for you. That's right. You can enjoy it for what it is. But, you know, I, I understand. People put down their money and they, they were mistaken for what they were hoping you were going to get but sometimes it's because you're not reading the label properly yeah right? read that cover for you know know it know what you're buying before you buy it would be it. nice but you know, <laughs> it, you know for honestly for a long time people be able just to just um, say dungeons and dragons it says that click and then it yeah. shows up at their door right yeah and so i don't blame them for being a little confused but i i'm a little frustrated by the fact that they're not reading properly and also maybe that the marketing hasn't said by the way this is kid stuff for kids as yeah. opposed to you know again 40-year-old Grognard stuff. So. Exactly. And then to leave, I, that drives me crazy. The people who don't understand or don't do the research before they buy something and then leave a review like it's your fault. You know, like, <laughs> oh, you, my favorite reviews are the ones where like the book got damaged in shipping. Oh, yeah. Stuff. Like, that's <laughs> totally your fault, of course. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll get right on that. <laughs> uh, so are you a D&D &D player? I have to imagine. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. I, I was a D&D &D player from way back. I mean, I started when I was like, uh, 13 years old, I think. Okay. And uh, yeah, I don't have a regular campaign nowadays, but my kids uh, beg me to start up something with them regularly. And hopefully one of these days we'll be able to get enough time to, to squeeze one in. But we do a lot of tabletop gaming around the house. And every time we go to a convention, we always sign up for whatever D&D &D, uh, uh, series that they have going on. We play through some of that as well. Nice. So um, yeah, I've played every edition all the way back to uh, basic Dungeons and Dragons, not white box quite, but the the blue box that came right after that. So, okay. uh, and I've you know been writing professionally for Dungeons and Dragons for decades as well. Yeah, and a lot of other games as well. It's 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 not my only thing, but it's definitely a core part of my uh, my career. Yeah. So, I'm gonna just use choose your own adventure as shorthand because that's what most sure. people know. How 
how do you even begin writing a choose your own adventure story you know i mean it's there's no one beginning i mean there is one beginning but there's no one ending and there's you know do you literally have to sit down and just like make a map for all the different branches yes <laughs> so uh this one was interesting because what they did is the guys at uh at king's road decided that they wanted to do 128 page books like this but they also wanted to be able to do 96 page um mass market editions okay. right so and those haven't come out yet and i don't know if they ever will because these are selling pretty well maybe we'll just stick with this but could be that scholastic for instance or something like that because mm-hmm. a 96 page five dollar edition at some point um so that what that meant is that i we had to have a story tree that we did out they, they sent me a page plan which is essentially uh, a map of what happens on every page in the book and they showed me which uh, pages they would all go to. So they all had it mapped out. And I sat down and flow charted it all out so I could understand it. Okay. Right? So they already had the structure of, like, yeah, you make this choice. Structure like that. Okay. But the funny part about the structure is, like, uh, a quarter of it literally was stuff that you could rip out and not miss at all. Okay. Right? So it, it had to be invisible to the reader that this was stuff. But anytime you reach a point in the book where there are three choices as opposed to two choices, that's because one of those choices would eventually be ripped out of the mass market edition. Ah, okay. Right? So it's, uh, but hopefully that's seamless and nobody really notices that because the whole point is to make your experience as, as seamless and as fun as possible without mm-hmm. worrying about somebody else's. But um, what I did is I, I took a gra- uh, drawing program, flowcharted all that out, uh, marked off the parts in red that were stuff that could be disposable at some point, uh, which made, meant I could have a lot of fun with those, but I couldn't make them core to the storyline. Right. right? And uh, then I went through and uh, I did an outline that said, okay, this is what's going to happen in every one of these these sections. And it was like maybe one or two sentences for each bit. And then I send that off to uh, King's Road and they, my editor goes through that with me and says, yeah, I like this. I li- maybe this is too much for kids that age or mm-hmm. maybe you can ramp this up a little bit here. Um, and then we come up, uh, we agree on what the story's going to be essentially. Right? Um, one of the interesting things about doing endless quest books or choose your own adventures of any kind is that you know, a lot of the endings are going to be bad endings, right? And I think, uh, I, again, some people want them to all be good endings. I don't think that's really as interesting because, no. you know, once you get a good ending, your tendency is to say, oh, and I won. And I'm exactly. Done. But what you want to do is have somebody go, oh, and I screwed that up. And, oh, let me go back to where I messed it up and uh, I'll co- continue on from here. And you want them to try to figure out where the good endings are. If mm-hmm. they don't have enough bad endings, they never get to that point, Right. So one of your jobs as a, as a writer of these things is to kill off people or end their stories in horrible, miserable ways that are entertaining every time. That's in different right. Ways, right. And that's definitely a challenge, but it's kind of a fun thing. You know, it's like, how, how miserable can I make these people every time? Um, and it, it's kind of fun, you know, because a lot of times when you write a story, you're thinking about uh, what are the best outcomes? What's the hero going to do at the end? How are they going to triumph, right? But in these stories, you can actually think about how does the hero fail utterly and miserably yeah. and make that happen over and over. So that's kind of a refreshing take for me. The endings, the gruesome deaths, the terrible endings, that, that is, I think, most of the fun of reading these kinds of books because it's yeah. like, how how many different ways can I just like get splattered under a giant's boot or or like fall off of a flying dragon or something? You know, like these horrible endings, that's... That's the reason you read these things. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's part and parcel of the whole genre. Exactly. You know? so, so, yeah, so I had a ball doing that. I think it was just fun bad. to come up with different ways to slaughter characters. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's not something you get to do all that often, you know? I mean, you if you're writing a novel, you, I mean, you're not going to kill your main character more than once, right? <laughs> you would hope. <laughs> Most Did you... Know. you never know. There's clones involved. You never know. You never know. 
did you work with the illustrator at all? Like, did you spec the art, or did the artist just kind of work from your manuscript? Uh, actually, almost all the artists pick up art from different things that have been done for Dungeons and Dragons already. Really? So this is actually one of the it's one of the ways it's, it makes it less expensive to produce a product, right? Yeah. So they're able to use uh, some pre-existing art. And one of the great things about that is that D&D has got so much amazing artwork to begin with, mm-hmm. right? So it's easy to uh, to pick up fantastic stuff that people are going to love. Um, that's also one of the reasons that it's a good idea to set the adventure or set our stories within adventures because then they can just go to those adventures and say, oh, hey, here's a map of exactly what we're talking about. It's already been drawn up. It's already there and it exists. We know exactly where everybody is. Or here's the character that we're talking about. Or here's the scene that we're talking about. And some of the stuff, they had to actually generate new material. But a, a large bit of it was just going through this vast library that Dungeons & Dragons has developed over the last 40 years and being able to choose some of the best artwork that they had available. Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to ask then if you wrote something that they just couldn't find existing art for and how you kind of resolved that. That was their problem. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Because I know, I mean, I work in publishing, and I know sometimes when the budget's not there for yeah, yeah. art, and they're just picking up, they're like, okay, you have to change your story because we don't have this art. But they, you said they did, they went and made original this time art. At least they didn't have any problems with that. Um, and, and it hasn't been announced yet, but I've been told I can tell people. I've actually been commissioned to write two more of these. Nice. Those will be out next year, and I'm actually working on the outlines after I get off the phone with you. So um, it's, uh, you know, it's a great, fun series. I've really enjoyed working with these guys. And they're very good about that kind of stuff. Like, well, well, we don't think we have the budget for that or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and there's an incentive for me because if I can make the budget easy on them, then hopefully they pay me more money or there's more room for royalties or right. whatever along the way. Not to be too mercenary about it, but this is how I feed my family. So, exactly. Um, you have to think about so these things. I have to make sure I can make some money at this to keep the lights on so I can keep <laughs> doing it. <laughs> so, all right, we've been talking a lot about Dungeons & Dragons. You mentioned that you have written for other universes, and you have. You've written for Halo. You've written for Star Wars. Um, so much of what you've written has been set in these established franchises. Is there something about writing in these universes that you don't necessarily own that really appeals to you? You know, it's not that it... I guess it does appeal to me. It's. Uh, I also like writing my own original stuff, and I'm working on a novel for Tor right now, and I've got a bunch of other original novels out. But, um, yeah, it's, it's fun, to, especially when you're working with franchises that you love, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, Halo, for instance, was something I was, I actually got to see the Halo stuff before it was even, even published. I went down to the Bungie offices back when they were in Chicago here, and I was interviewing for a game design gig with them. Ended up going to a guy named John Scott Tynes, who's a good friend of mine. And, you know, thankfully he got the job and did a hell of a job with it. But, <laughs> uh, uh, but they ended up showing me Halo like two years before it came out as a prototype. And, mm-hmm. Uh, even from that point, I was hooked on the game. So I've been playing the games. And I play them with my kids, too, uh, ever since they've been coming out. You know, things like Dungeons & Dragons, obviously, I have a long history with. Uh, I've written things like the Marvel Encyclopedia and Captain America books. And, you know, I learned how to read on Marvel Comics back when I was three or four years old. So uh, to me, that just goes back, and that's a lot of my childhood. People say, you know, how much research did you have to do for this? And a buddy of mine, Ken Height, would say, well, just his whole life. <laughs> and that's okay. It's the stuff that you love to do. Um and, you know, I, uh, sometimes something new will come along and I'll write a, a tie-in for that. Like, I wrote a tie-in novel for the Leverage TV show, mm. which was uh, run by a friend of mine, John Rogers, who was one of the co-creators. And I helped him set up the novel deal for that. I, I said, you should write novels for this, John. He's like, well, do you know any editors? I'm like, yeah, I know a bunch of editors. <laughs> so I ended up doing one of the novels for that. Uh, and my next book coming out next month, apparently, is a book based on Life is Strange, which is a video game. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a... a 
a bit of a choose your own adventure type of video game. It's one of those uh, point and click adventures in a lot of ways, right? Um, a couple of them. There's been two games so far, and there's a third one coming out here uh, very, very shortly. And uh, the reason I got in that one is because my kids absolutely love that game, mm. right? Like they're uh, one of my sons is just gaga over. He buys everything he has to do with it. He's got uh, every edition of this game over three or four different platforms. Wow! And uh, when he when I was offered the gig to write the book, he's like, "Oh my god, you got to do this!" Right? <laughs> and uh, I had played a little bit of the game, but it wasn't really I didn't dive into it as deeply as he had. Uh, and I had him coach me through it. I had him show me how to play the game, and you know, we had a wonderful time doing it together. And then, actually, for the book, when it comes out, he did a bunch of the screenshots for it. So I sent him off with his PC. He's got a monster gaming PC. Mm-hmm. And said, okay, we need screenshots for different things that the editor needs. Can you go take these screenshots for me? And he went and did that for me. Just nice. And loved every second of it. It was sure. a lot of fun working with him. And he's 16 years old. Yeah, what's not to... What's, dad needs me to play games for work, well, you know? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like, hey, kid, this is the reason all this stuff has been tax write-offs. Until now. <laughs> so, now we need to make this work. The IRS needs to see you going at it. <laughs> um... So, as a freelancer, I'm sure these uh, franchises probably are reliable in terms of payment. You know, it, it, it's, you know, you can, I don't want to say that's why you take certain jobs, but like you said, this is how you feed your family. So, I mean, it, have you noticed or gotten frustrated that taking these franchise projects or working on stuff like that has pushed your original work to the back burner? Yeah, I have noticed that as a problem. Uh, part of that's because... You know, when somebody, I, I actually at one point said I'm going to stop doing tie-in books uh, permanently. I'm just going to work on my own original stuff, right? And that was about five years ago. And um, and then somebody came up and said, would you like to write Halo novels? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'd love to write Halo novels. <laughs> and would you like to write Star Wars novels? And, oh, yeah. 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 Uh, would you like to write D&D stuff? Oh, God, yes. And, that, <laughs> and so that pushes things aside. Um, on the other hand, I'm a fairly quick writer. Uh, I had a problem a few years ago where I started to slow down. It turned out I had an autoimmune disease, which I've now gotten under control with, with some really cool medications. But um, it was slowing me down to about a third of what I was normally able to do, right? Wow. But when I'm usually writing, I'm writing at a good clip on a novel, I can write you know, 5,000 words a day. And that, that's uh, 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 at a clip where I can you know, generate a lot of books in a year, yeah. right? So uh, it didn't really scare me to do all these things as opposed to doing original stuff. Uh, it is a problem where I've gotten to a point in my career where you know, work just falls in my lap. I don't have to go out and look for it anymore, right. right? Which is a wonderful place to be, and I would never complain about that. Uh, but however, let me complain about that. <laughs> um, the, the only problem is then that uh, I don't get to focus on things that maybe are, are closer to my heart because there's this really cool thing that just showed up. Now, I have developed uh, the ability to say no to people, and that's becoming something I'm having to be a little bit more sharp with sometimes, uh, where somebody will say, Hey, uh, can you help me out with this? I'm like, I'm just absolutely slammed at the moment. I can't, right? right? I could take on this job with you, but I wouldn't be able to do it until two years down the line. Right. And then they say, well, oh, that's fine. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm trying to say no. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to be nice. <laughs> exactly. And the other thing I do is I, I, I tell them I need to charge them three times what I would normally uh, take for something. Yeah. And then they say yes to that. And, and then you have to take it, right? <laughs> it's, it's a terrible problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's 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 good fun, and I, I I would never complain about the kind of stuff that I'm doing because I really do love every project that I get to work on. Um, however, there are times when I would say yeah, I'm looking forward to doing uh, these other books that I've had brewing in the back of my mind for a long time. This tour book I actually sold to a guy named Jim Franco, who was then um, uh, drummed out of tour for sexual harassment, actually mm. a scandal about five years ago, 
And then I got sick, and then my mother died, and all this kind of stuff. So I didn't quite get to doing the book. At one point in my life, I was six books behind in my schedule. Yeah. Right at the moment, I've caught up to the point where I'm only one book behind. It's that one tour book, and I'm going to finish it this year. I'm going to finish it this fall yeah. and get it done. And then I'm moving on to more original stuff after that. But that's nice. that's actually an original novel, too, which I'm really, really excited about writing. Unfortunately, Tor has been very patient with me up to this point. Hopefully, they won't ditch out of me tomorrow. But, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and I, and I could not blame them if they did. That yeah. would be perfectly within their rights. Uh, but they've been really patient with me so far. I'm very understanding that, you know, life happens and you have to roll with the punches. And honestly, it's just a book. If the book doesn't come out now and it comes out three years from now, the only question is whether it will ever come out. Yeah. And I am absolutely dedicated to getting this done because it's a story that's been burning my head for, I think, seven or eight years now. And I just want to write it. Yeah. It's, um, but once I finish off, uh, I think, doing the the outlines for these endless quest books that's my next thing yeah well it's a good problem to have like you said you know yeah, too much work is better than nothing <laughs> yeah i get to take off almost all of august to go wander around uh africa and go to gen con and have a wonderful time so i again i cannot complain about what's going on it's just i wish there were i had uh, more bandwidth is about it yeah sure don't we all where did you yeah. go in africa uh, well, there's this group called Forward Slash Story that does a story, t- a multimedia or transmedia storytelling lab every year. They've been doing it for, I think, five years now. And I went to visit them. And they invited me out to their Costa Rica version two years ago. Mm-hmm. And this year they did it in uh, Lamu Island, which is off the uh, yep. coast of Kenya yep. in the Indian Ocean. And uh, my wife said, hey, you're going to Africa. I'm, I'd like to come to Africa. Yeah. So we went, uh, spent two weeks doing a safari before that, before the, uh, the Forward Slash Story Lab. And I sent her home when I went off to go to do the lab. Nice. And we just had a wonderful time. And we went all the way through Masai Mara and Amboseli and Lake Nakuru and so uh, Southwest and had a blast. You just were in Kenya the whole time? Yep, nice. Kenya the whole time. We spent two days in Qatar on our way out because we flew Qatar Airlines. Uh-huh. And it's some kind of crazy deal where uh, if you stayed overnight, one night it was free. If you stayed overnight, two nights, it was $50 total. Yeah. And they put you up in a five-star Hyatt hotel. Yeah, why not? the bay and you're like this is yeah why would i not take this deal right? exactly fifty dollars for two days in a, in a luxury hotel in qatar exactly uh, and then we moved on to uh to kenya after that we just had an amazing time yeah no i've been to kenya it's uh when i was in college i uh i did my archaeological field school there oh and, very cool. uh, yeah, it was awesome i spent a summer there and then the next summer i went back i was in tanzania so yeah it's it's been a while since i've been there but i just adored it i, I would love to go back so. No, it was an amazing country. The people were so friendly and, yeah. and fantastic. And God, we ate like kings every day. You know, yeah. it was a um, wonderful, wonderful time. Yeah. No, I'm jealous. I'm jealous. <laughs> I'm still kind of glowing from it because it <laughs> just about a week ago I got back. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure you've got tons of great pictures. Oh, amazing pictures! Right? We just we saw the big five. We yeah. saw all sorts of other animals. Just Ugh. had a tremendous time. And you know, getting to swim off uh, Lamu and getting pulled out to sea between that and Manda Island and. We stayed, there's this guy, uh, uh, Michelle, who's got a house where he's trying to set up a new residency for writers there. And so we stayed in these really amazing places, a place nice. called Atuma's Tower, too, is a place we stayed at there. And uh, they're just these gorgeous houses that you're like, how the hell did I end up, end up in a place like this? <laughs> I guess I know the right people who know the right people. Exactly. <laughs> kind of stunning, right? I'm like, this has got to be a millionaire, billionaire's house. And yeah. Just kind of wandering through. You know? It's full. Of, you you go someplace like that, and you're you you're full of one type of expectation, and then yeah. you know it'll take you by surprise every single day. Every yeah, like, you know. things you could never could have imagined happening happening. 
it was it was totally incredible. I mean, we saw we saw terrible poverty as well. We saw a yeah. lot of people having a hard time. We saw actual Maasai warriors in the, in yep. the field. Right? Yep. Just amazing stuff. Um, yeah. But you know, it's one of the things that they say about being a writer or an artist of any kind is that you tend to be able to float between social circles without any kind of friction, right? Right. right. You can be you know hanging with people in a gutter one day, and you could be at a, at a gala the next night, right? Yeah. And it's just one of the amazing uh, things to be able to be that kind of chameleon and yeah. move one sphere to another like that. Yeah. Now, r- real quickly, it's like I just piggybacking on that, because it, I had the same experience, because it was, we were there both times, and I was there to be sort of in an academic capacity. We were studying, we were doing work. Um, especially when I was in Tanzania, we were on this little island off the coast north of Zanzibar. Like, no tourists went there. We were just in this little village doing work every day out in the field. Um, but the highlight of my entire trip was when I found myself having dinner at Jane Goodall's house. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know, it's like, how did I, I, like, she wasn't there, you know, but which, which actually kind oh, of cool because I could go around, I could look in her books and look at the awards <laughs> on the wall and kind of like, be like, like snoop around her house but the entire time like how did i get here like what is happening to me <laughs> it's just it's stunning right and if, you're, if you're lucky and you're out there and you're doing good things and you're you're putting yourself out there yeah, yeah. You know, amazing things can happen to you like that yeah. that's just kind of stunning absolutely right? wonderful absolutely uh so back to your career though um, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah back to you <laughs> You have had not only writing the opportunity to write for lots of different franchises in addition in addition to your own work, but you've been you've worked across so many different media. Like you've written novels, you've written comics, role playing games, tabletop games, video games. Like you said, interactive toy design. Has that been by design? Like, do you find that working with <laughs> one format gets stale after a while? Uh, you know, it doesn't. It's not that it gets stale. I mean, it's kind of by design. The fact that I like to diversify income streams, as I said, right? Okay. Um, for instance, I was making a lot of money in the toy industry for a long time, and then uh, in 2008, when the financial crisis hit, that all dried up. Right. Mm-hmm. All the original stuff that they were doing turned into just doing licensed stuff, and often just translating stuff from Japan. Right. Right. Um, so in in that's a, in, in that field, my income just dried up entirely. So. Fortunately, I was already moving into doing novels and, and uh, other stuff at that point, so it wasn't much of a bump in my income. I just it was a little bit of a dip, and I moved into something else, right? And uh, that's one of the reasons I try to write in a lot of different categories. Is if suddenly one market disappears, like maybe I call the wrong guy an asshole, right? right. <laughs> and I end up being banned <laughs> from one industry. I still have other industries to go to, or maybe there's a financial crisis, or maybe suddenly everybody in the world stops reading comic books mm-hmm. or playing games or whatever, or you know, who knows, right? Um, that that means that I'm not dependent upon any one particular thing. So, for instance, uh, if I was just doing Dungeons and Dragons and there was a change in leadership at the company, which there has been a number of times over the years, and the new leaders wanted to just bring in fresh people and don't want to talk to the old guard anymore, mm-hmm. I would be out of luck, right? Now, fortunately, I've got lots and lots of friends at D&D over the years, and Mike Merles, who's the guy who's in charge of it now, I actually introduced him to the people there uh, for his first freelance gig. Wow. So he knows me from way back, right? Yeah. Um, and he didn't hire me on to write these books, but of course, when uh, the Candlewick and the, and the King's Road guys come to Mike and say, "Do you have any problems with Matt Forbeck writing this?" He's like, "No, I know Matt from way back." So that, yeah. that helps out a lot. Um, but you know, it's it's less by design and more like hap- by happenstance, right? I didn't actually try to get into writing video games, for instance, but uh, a lot of the guys I knew in tabletop games had gone into writing video games because it's a much more stable and lucrative field mm-hmm. than doing tabletop. So. Occasionally, it's would say, ah, I need a writer who can do this kind of stuff. Oh, I know Matt. He can do that, right? So I would get an email or a phone call saying, where are you interested in doing this? 
And you know, generally speaking, I'd say, yeah, that sounds like fun. So that's how I ended up doing video game work. Um, I mean, last last year, the stuff I worked on this year and a little bit at the end of last year hasn't even been announced, so I can't talk about it all. Mm-hmm. The stuff I worked on in 2016, it came out in 2017, was uh, Ghost Recon Wildlands. I wrote a good chunk of for uh, Tom Clancy Games for Ubisoft. I also was a story doctor on Assassin's Creed Origins, right? Mm-hmm. And when somebody comes up to you and says, would you like to help us out with the story first, the new Assassin's Creed game, you're like, yeah. Yeah, you say yes. I want to do that. So, <laughs> Uh, because, again, that's a series I've played the hell out of, and I love the games, and I have friends who work in this, um, um, as writers on the um, on the series. So if somebody says, would you be willing to help us out with this? You're like, sure, this is fun. And video games, have, uh, because they've got a larger budget than a lot of these other things, have taken me around the world. I've been to Sweden and Singapore and Shanghai and all over the place doing lots and lots of different writing for different games, and it's been a lot of fun doing that. And uh, one of the interesting things is, I was just thinking about this this morning, is that um, people who do one thing think the other people are doing the cooler thing. Exactly. It's always the grass is greener. Mm -hmm. So I I work with video game writers, and they're always like, God, I just just want to write my novel, right? (laughs) Sure, you should do both, right? There's no reason you shouldn't do both. But it's, you know, I I know a lot of novelists like, man, I just want to break into video games, right? And you're like, yeah, you should, yeah, but there, there are definitely pluses and minuses for both. I mean, video games, when you're working in a video game, you're working with, often 100 to 200 to maybe 300 different people, right? And you, your vision is not uh, what's going to come through at the end, right? You're contributing to a larger vision that's kind of coalesced out of all these different people under the hopeful guidance of whoever's at the top of all this. Um, but you're just one cog in a machine, really, at that point, right? And so while you're contributing to something very cool that's much larger than one person can ever possibly pull off, uh, it's not going to be your vision. Right. Whereas with a novel, it's entirely your vision. It's just you and the page. And whatever you put on that page is what is seen by the reader at the end of the day. And there's some uh, there's some great, incredible power that comes with that and some responsibility that comes with that. But again, it's something that's uh, it's not this huge experience that requires hundreds of people to pull off. It's just you and maybe an editor and a cover artist and all this kind of stuff. But the main core experience of it is just you. And so there are two very different experiences as a creator to be able to work in those fields. And I encourage people who are doing this to do both of them if they can, because I think it's uh, it's easy to feel like you're just a cog in one. It's easy to just be in your own head if you're doing the other. And to kind of cross between the two, I think, helps keep you grounded, yeah. if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, with that in mind, though, I mean, you also wrote recently the Rogue One Junior novelization. So like, what, yeah. what challenges are there? when you're writing a novelization of something that already exists, you know, or maybe didn't at the time, but it's a film, you know, you're, you're right. translating from one medium to another. What challenges are there with writing something like that versus an original work, even if it's set in an, in an existing IP that's not your own? Well, one of the, the, if you're writing an original work, uh, or even, you know, like you say, an original tie-in work, the neat thing about it is that you're, it's hard for you to be wrong, hmm. right? Especially if it's yours, right? You're, you're the person who says, this is how it happened, right? Yeah. Uh, if you're writing a novelization for a Star Wars film, uh, you can be wrong in lots and lots of ways. <laughs> uh, there's, uh, it's very easy to screw it up. Because, and here's the hard part: is you haven't seen the film, yeah. right? The, uh, when I did the novelization, it came out the same day as the film. Oh right? wow! Oh wow! So, and while the people at Lucasfilm were really good to work with, and sent me, I actually had script access, which is something that they weren't giving a whole lot of writers up until that point. Um, but I kind of said, I pointed out that I really needed this to be able to fit it because otherwise I'm going to quote stuff from an earlier version of the film. What really happens, I'll back up a step. What happens is they, they lock you in a room with the script. And in my case, they did it with a bunch of other writers. We had a writer's summit and, uh, they lock you in a room with the scripts and give you two hours to read the script. Mm-hmm. Right. 
and you're supposed to go flip through it and take as many notes as you can and then come back the next day and read it for one more time and take as many notes as you can. Then go away and write it, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is that you can't, unless you're actually hand copying the entire script within four hours, which is next to impossible, you're going to miss things, right? You're going to miss quotes that are going to be really germane to the thing. Stuff that people are going to be quoting for decades afterwards, you're going to blow, yeah, right? Because you just don't have that right in front of you at the time. And nobody's going to look back and say, uh, well, that guy, they're going to say, well, that guy was working under strange circumstances. Of course he missed it. They're going to say, that guy fucked it up and didn't get the quote in. I just right, right. That's okay. Um, <laughs> you can believe me if you have to. Uh, uh, so, you know, they're not going to uh, be forgiving about that because the work has to stand on its own. It's not doesn't stand within the circumstances that you'd have to explain to somebody. So I was able to explain that to the story group at Lucasfilm. They're like, yeah, sure, we'll give you script access. So I actually had an, uh, a special app on my computer that was linked to a, uh, a program on my phone that gave me a password that lasted for 60 seconds. So I could <laughs> log into this thing and get the script access. And it would log me out if I wasn't on there for, at five minutes at a time. Um, so because of that, I was able to follow along and make sure that everything was good for the script. But that still doesn't mean that you've seen all this stuff, right? It's hard for you to describe stuff you haven't seen. So uh, one of the cool things that is when we were out there, they showed us a lot of the dailies. So I got to see about 20 minutes of the film in rough form uh, before it was actually released to anybody. That was about nine months before the film was out. Mm. Um, and then they, they sent me a lot of stills and stuff from other books they were working on. Like they always do the art of the of whatever movie it is, mm-hmm. or they do the kids' book. Uh, the DK Publishing does a lot of visual guides. So they would send us a lot of that material. So we'd have that information, know what the actors looked like, uh, if I needed to figure out what their voices were going to be like, hopefully they're not doing a crazy accent, but I can go <laughs> find other stuff that they've done in the past mm-hmm. and say, okay, this is what Forrest Whitaker sounds like. He's probably going to sound like this uh, in this film. And uh, and try to make it as close to it as you possibly can. Um, that said, they still give you a little bit of leeway. I did the junior novelization, which is fairly short, so I didn't have a ton of space in which to expand upon the storyline. With the adult novelizations, like Mer Lafferty just did the latest one for Solo, they allow you to do expanded stuff, things that were cut from the script, things right. that are they're going to be canon, but they weren't able to fit in the film. Um, and for this one, uh, I wasn't able to do too much. <clears throat> but one of the cool things I was able to do was a friend of mine, Jeff McIntosh, had died of brain cancer uh, the year before that, or six months before I was working on the book. And a bunch of us got together, it was friends of his who worked in the you know, video game and tabletop industries, and said, so we're going to just slip Jeff's name into a bunch of different oh, stuff. that's great. It's a memorial. So the problem is, of course, that Jeff McIntosh isn't a uh, Star Wars name. Right. right? you got to change it up. <laughs> exactly. So I ran this past my editor, and we ended up, uh, if you see in the movie, there's a bit at the end where Darth Vader comes onto the, the scene, he's slaughtering people. And there's this guy who's got the, the plants, and he runs, and he stuffs them through a door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Door, and there's a guy who grabs him and takes him on to Princess Leia, right? The guy that grabs him and takes him on to Princess Leia, his name is Toshma Jeffkin. Oh. <laughs> a, a mix-up of Jeff McIntosh, right? I love it. I love so, it. And I was able to get that in there. And the actor who played him is actually a guy named Christopher Nolan, not the director. But yeah. Chris Nolan writes me and says, you gave me a name because he was playing this character that didn't have a name or a story. And he's like, now I have a name. So that was really kind of cool. And Jeff's parents were really appreciative of that. His family was really appreciative of that. And I, I was just really happy to have that kind of memorial to him. Oh, stuck sure. into a franchise that he loved since he was a kid. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Good for you. That's I love stories like that. Um, 
when you were writing though, did you collaborate with Alexander Freed at all? He since he wrote the I, I guess you call it the adult novelization of he the did. movie. Yeah. Uh, we didn't talk too much after that. I mean, I had known Alex since I, I had worked on uh, briefly on the Star Wars Old Republic uh, video game, and I had mm. met Alex during that period, right? So uh, when we showed up at the Writers' Summit together, we looked at each other. Oh, hi, how you doing? Yeah, right? uh, we knew each other there, and um, you know, I didn't go back with him back and forth about what he was including in the book because we were both under very tight deadlines. To be honest with you, uh, by the time the third shooting script has come had come through, it was like September, and we had to actually have the book done within like four weeks wow. to be able to pull that off. So we're both writing at speed. He's having to write twice as much as I did, at least. So I wasn't going to be interrupting him and say, hey, Alex, how are you coming? <laughs> uh, or can you finish that one up so I can write my book? <laughs> Vice versa. Um, but yeah, I, I see him at, uh, at conventions still. He's a really neat guy. He does yeah. great. He's, uh, he's done a lot of stuff in the, on the Star Wars Battlefront games as well. Yeah. How did, how did playing in that, that sandbox, that Star Wars sandbox, how does that compare to writing for Halo or Dungeons & Dragons or, or another IP? You know, they're all iconic in their own ways. I mean, when I started writing for Halo, I, I was thinking to myself, like, uh, when I was growing up, Star Wars was how people were introduced to science fiction a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Whether or not you consider it hard science fiction or not, it's, it's science fiction, right? And, uh, and there had been this period where there wasn't any more Star Wars stuff coming out for a while up until episode uh, seven came out. And I was like, well, Halo is really the way a lot of kids are learning about science fiction. They're you know, getting on their Xbox, yeah. playing these video games, and they're learning this. So this is an important thing to be able to be a part of, to be able to help influence and, and guide. And so I was really excited about that. <clears throat> Star Wars is iconic because it's older than most of that stuff, although D&D is about the same age as Star Wars. And obviously Star Wars has got, it's a multi-billion dollar franchise. Um, and it, for me, it was, yeah, it's kind of like it just tickled the inner child in me to be able to say, yeah, I'm writing something for Star Wars. <laughs> um, and, I, and honestly, going, uh, like when I started writing for Halo or D&D, nobody invites you over to the offices to check it out, whatever. They're like, OK, here's your contract. Yeah. You've played the games. Here's some more material. Go. Right. But when I was doing the Star Wars thing, like, yeah, we need you to fly out to Lucasfilm's offices and sit down with us for the story, this writer summit. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is cool. I got this tour. Uh, Tour of the uh, Lucasfilm offices and ILM, and they have this beautiful uh, place in the Presidio overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge, mm-hmm. and every bit of it looks like it's out of a movie, right? Yeah. Like I can't believe I'm in this gorgeous setting, uh, and yeah, a lot of people have now seen they have a Yoda statue and a fountain yeah. sitting out in front of it, and it was kind of stunning to be able to walk through all that and see all the different things from the different movies they've worked on, all the different, like they have, uh, you know, just like the Ark of the Covenant sitting over here. <laughs> Like, holy cow. Um, To be able to wander through all that, just this is some guy's day job, some lady's day job. It's fantastic fun. Uh, And I also think it reminds you that this is a business and it's a creative endeavor as opposed to when by the time it comes out and you see it, it's magic to you. It's this magical story. But there's a lot of craft that goes into this at very, very many levels. Um, And it's kind of be interesting to be able to sit there and watch these people work in this and look over the shoulders of people. They're actually like you know tweaking everything to make it look perfect and make it sing and vibrate and resonate the way it does. Yeah, it's funny. I've talked to a lot of people who have written for Star Wars for the show, and that is almost to a T to every individual. That's yeah. what they've said has been their their best experience. You know, it's not the book tour, or it's not you know seeing their their name on the bestseller list. It's it's that initial time, the first time they go out to Skywalker Ranch and just being like dumbstruck, like a little kid walking around. Yeah. Every, everybody has said that. <laughs> it's just too cool. There's so much history there. Yeah, right? absolutely. There's so many things that just like, it just 
pokes that kid in you, yeah, you know, right in the heart, and you're like, oh, this is cool. So, <laughs> like, um, again, it's one of those how is this my life moments, you know, like yeah, exactly. what, what happened here. Exactly. And if you're too jaded to treasure that, there's something wrong with yeah. you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Maybe they hired the wrong person. If you just walk yeah, in, you're exactly. like, ah, whatever, no big deal. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, it, it's a kick. I, I I love working with all this different stuff, and and I get to work with a lot of amazing people on it. So it's always a kick. Yeah. yeah. What is uh, the toughest or most frustrating thing about writing that you absolutely love to do? <laughs> <clears throat> For me, it's actually the part that I love, and I don't find it tough, and maybe that's one reason I love it, but I know a lot of people do. I love the actual stringing together of words and sentences and paragraphs and such into making chapters and then stories. I actually like the process of writing. I mean, there's I know there are a lot of writers out there, especially a lot of aspiring writers, who don't actually enjoy the process of writing. They find it painful. Hmm. Right? They want to be somebody who has written yeah. as opposed to somebody who writes. They want to be the author with the uh, with the signing and the book tour and everything mm-hmm. else and all the glamour that comes with it, although it's not as glamorous as, as it sounds. Honestly. <laughs> um, and uh, but I actually, you know, one of the things that sustains me is that you know ninety nine percent of my time is set is spent sitting alone in a room with a blank screen in front of me filling it up. Yeah. And I actually enjoy doing that part. I, I really get a kick out of it. I love the idea of just being able to arrange things and knowing that people are going to read this and. I like to even arrange the way that things look on a page. So I, even when I'm writing a, a paragraph, I'll try to work out the beats in a chapter so it doesn't look too long. It just feels right as your as your eye passes over it, right? Yeah, Part of that's because right. I have a background in graphic design as well. Um, so I like to be able to, to make things pleasurable for just people to read. And I think a lot of people find that challenging. I think they, they uh, don't actually enjoy that part of it. But for me, that's... Uh, I think if you can find the joy in the in the simple everyday parts of the job, then the rest of the job becomes just icing on the cake after that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anything else that happens over and above that, that's just um, bonus stuff. Uh, if you hate the basic part of the job, then you're just doing that so you can get to the fun stuff, right? But if you can find the, the pleasure in what you're doing, whether, you know, if, whether it's sweeping a floor or driving pizza or helping kids at school or writing a book, whatever, find the joy in whatever you're doing at the moment. And then the rest of it falls into place for you. Yeah. My, my, my dad, my, <clears throat> excuse me. My dad always used to say, uh, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah. That's a, that's a common phrase. That the <laughs> first of that, of course, is that you'll never have a day off. Right? That's right. That's true, too. <laughs> but you know what? I, I don't have a whole lot of days off. I mean, when I did this trip in, in Kenya, my wife commented on the fact that it was like the first time she'd seen me not working on a vacation in decades. Wow. Right. And uh, because I usually just bring my laptop along and go at it at night whenever Bells is asleep. Um, but this time I left my laptop at home and I answered emails occasionally once a day. And that would be about it. Um, and just shoved everything else aside for two weeks, which is really unusual for me. Because um, I like what I do, right? I love what I do. I have deadlines coming. I have kids to help feed. Um, so I don't hesitate to do that stuff. But I think it's healthy to be able to push it away occasionally, too. Yeah, for sure. And it's... Uh, uh, it is, you know, I, I know sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm faking my way through this a little bit because I'm not as deep into it as a lot of my, some of my peers are. Some of my peers are like so into books and so into games and so into film. And I'm into all these different things yeah. at a very shallower level than they are. Right. Um, but I, I enjoy it just that way. I, I, I think, again, it helps keep me grounded sure. and uh, and it helps me to draw upon lots of different sources as opposed to hyper focusing on just one thing. To the point where 
maybe it would be more of a grind for me and maybe I would start to hate it. Yeah, no, for sure. I like it's like what you were saying before, you know, you you diversify your portfolio, so to speak. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. not not just for the safety of your income, but also for your sanity. And, you know, it's like if, if you dive so deep into one thing, you do run the risk of it, get, of it getting stale and being like, ugh, I don't really enjoy this anymore. So, yeah, um, yeah spread yourself danger, out. I think there's also a danger where you start to write for uh, or create for uh, other creators in your circle mm-hmm. as opposed to for the audience, right? So I've seen this happen in games a lot and, and other stuff where, Instead of writing for your, your basic reader or your basic game player, you start doing stuff for your peers, right? Mm-hmm. You're trying to impress your peers as opposed to entertain the people that are your basic audience. So you get really esoteric type stuff as opposed to stuff that's more useful and uh, utilitarian. I think being able to haul back from that allows me, again, when you're talking about, you know, who are the endless quest books? Are they for that 40 or 50-year-old Ragnar? Are they for the 8 to 10 or 12-year-olds, yeah. right? And you have to have that mind of that kid coming to it fresh as opposed to somebody who's been doing this for decades. Yeah. My wife always tends always says, yeah, I'm still 14 years old in my head. And I, there's I, nothing I wrong that. with that. I love that. Right? <laughs> I love being young in my head and I hope I end up being that way into my nineties and beyond. Right. right. Uh, if I'm lucky, I'll, I'll manage to get that far, but it's, uh, it's really about just trying to keep that, that perspective as fresh as you can. And for me, again, a lot of that is dipping in and out of different things. So I don't end up hyper focusing on one thing too much. This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. Take care.